Yeah, probably making friends along the way and yeah. memories and, you know, you get that that adrenaline or that endorphin, you know, after a good workout, getting yeah. down that hill. Uh, maybe you crash a few times, but, you know, everyone's okay. Yeah, when you're 11 and even younger, obviously, like Malleable, the, the right? dis- and the distance <laughs> to fall is a lot lower, right? That's true. When you're 43 and you're six foot one and you fall, it's a bigger yeah. distance and your bones aren't as... Yeah. Is, uh, so is this something you're going to do regularly, you think? Just do it every week? There's a few of them. Yeah. There's a couple of them. They're on Thursdays. So um, yeah. that'll be, there's like one more or two more maybe. I got to get on the calendar. I got to get that figured out. Yeah. But Do you feel okay uh, yelling at other children? Like, hey. I love to yell at other children. Hey. <laughs> I specialize in that. <laughs> I, uh, so I help coach our, his basketball team too. Okay. And we do a lot of yelling. Yeah. And not really yeah. yelling, yeah. but yeah. just yeah. kind of corralling kids that have a lot of energy. That it, When it's cold out like this, the kids aren't going outside during the day as much. So right. Tuesday's a good example. We practice at night, and the kids just want to run in the gym. And it's like, I get it. You know, they're 11-year-old boys. They want to get energy out. But we still got to corral them. So, yeah, I don't have as much issue. Yeah. Getting on All right. That. So, yeah, you're heading out to the ski hill tonight. This is awesome. All right. Well, uh, I guess... <clears throat> Go to Times Any to get the show on the road, yep. right? Uh, so we're talking about market, uh, quarterly market performance here and market update. Um, got a few charts we're going to go over and somewhat of a look back as we've done in the past, um, kind of looking at the quarter that was. And then we, you know, tiptoe as far as what does that might, what does that might maybe mean looking forward? Um, yeah, sound like a plan? Yeah, great way to tee it up because, yeah, part of this is going to be backward looking, talking about what happened, kind of why it happened. And then start to look ahead. At, okay, where are we at now? And maybe some and add into some items of what's what we expect going forward. Yeah. The fourth quarter was tremendous for uh, broad asset classes. Really, from that kind of end of the third quarter, September 30th time period, stock markets, even the bond market, performed really quite well in this last quarter. U.S. stock market was up just over 12 percent. International about a you know 10 and a half. Emerging still very solid at about eight percent. Um, in bonds, you can see two bonds were up. Um, you know, pretty significantly. We saw the U.S. bond market was up almost 7% in the fourth quarter. That's a big move for the bond market. Um, that's above average, and that happened all in just in one quarter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm seeing the only red spot commodities, um, just people rebalancing, real estate up. Yeah, like say stock, U.S. stock market, international, all these are kind of well above average. Yeah, commodities broadly were down um, on, the, on the quarter. Um, energy prices were down. We saw this also gets kind of baked into the inflation numbers, which was a big driver of a lot of this. If we went back to the end of the third quarter, that was about the time the Federal Reserve started declaring kind of quasi-victory on the battle against inflation. Of course, the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates for several quarters, months, leading prior to that point, leading up to that, to help stomp out inflation. And when the data starts coming through as though it's been some successful moves as far as fighting inflation, the stock markets really um, um, kind of rallied around that because um, the expectation now is that rates are done increasing and at some point there's going to be a cut in interest rates. Yeah, be that in the, the spring. I know there's sort of an opportunity maybe in March, as soon as March, maybe it's 50-50 odds is what I've been reading, but at 50-50 it might as well be September. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, in those odds and those probabilities change, of course, it's all with the data, but effectively what we saw in this last fourth quarter is that the cut rate cuts are expected sooner than previously expected, right? The market often moves or really always moves based on future expectations. And what we saw was those expectations got kind of pulled pulled closer in time and rates coming down typically has been good for stocks in the past. So I'm looking at this next chart. Um, 
this is the the top seven S&P. We've also got S&P sort of broadly, um, and then a, kind of an, another measure of S&P, it looks like. Yeah. Um, so what can, what can you tell us about this? It looks like there's 80% gain from, what is that, seven stocks? Yeah, yeah, the Magnificent Seven, as they've been called. Um, so what we're looking at, this is calendar year 23, looking at the whole year, zooming out. The an orangish peachish line what we're looking at that's that's the broad market for the whole year it's about 26 percent the u.s large market 26 percent that's quite remarkable um that 80 percent figure that that's if we just take a look at just that segment of the top seven largest companies the magnificent seven those are the ones that drove a outsized proportion of the overall results up almost 81 percent for just those seven companies yeah, so it, it seems like the story here is that the interest rate, we're looking at a, you know, every month that passes, you know, you kind of look from January, March, May, you know, May it takes off through the summer, a little dip in November, and then kind of back to the races to the end of the year. You know, all of that seems like it's in prep for, you know, sort of federal, you know, central bankers action. Yeah, yeah, a lot of these, certainly a lot of these companies, those Magnificent Seven, it's a lot of more technology-oriented companies, right? It's the Apple, Microsoft, uh, NVIDIA is going to be in there, right? A lot of these companies that are heavily technology-based um, that um, in a lowering rate environment, when rates are coming down, interest rates are coming down, they tend to perform better. If we rewound to 2022, it was the exact opposite. Those larger companies, they're more tech-oriented when rates were rising, their prices were really coming down quite a bit. And so some of this we saw this last year was kind of an offset or somewhat of a kind of normalization of what we saw the last couple of years. Yeah. Last 2023 is a great year, but if we were to look at a two-year number, it's really quite a different picture. Uh, you had really big down or um, big down year in 2022, a big up year in 23, add it all together and it's kind of getting back to kind of being even at this point. Yeah, it's just interesting how much, uh, you know, Fed policy drives market performance, especially on those, you know, those high-flying tech stocks, you know, there's that inverse relationship. One goes up, the other goes down, maybe broadly. So I guess as we look forward into this next year with the expectation of rate cuts, I don't know, do we anticipate greater performance? And then my follow-up question is, how does that play into that small cap? So as money looks for places to grow, if large is tapped out effectively, or potentially, mm -hmm. you know, the market looks for other opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and there's two ways that, that can come about, right? You can have some of those larger companies start to slow down, perhaps, to kind of fit back into kind of maybe more normalized valuations, or you can have smaller companies kind of pick up more as well. Right, so um, we have a, a breadth increase in that case yeah. um, as compared to just sort of a, an overall, I don't, what's the word, Retra retraction? Or not quite a recession per se, but something, a pullback broadly. Yeah, yeah and to define, to define that a little more, last year was, what we'd consider to be pretty narrow breadth. Again, with seven companies leading most of the market, that's what we call pretty narrow breadth. And that in the late part of the year started to revert a bit. We saw a little bit wider, kind of more broader participation. Getting into some of the small cap discussion now, that's one area where when we look at valuations, we look at performance on some of those companies. Although they've been performing and they've been positive, um, we still see that as an area that is still um, relatively attractive compared to larger companies. And that's an area that we still uh, want to participate in. We still allocate to that segment um, because, again, we think from a valuations perspective and also long-term perspective, small caps do tend to do relatively well compared to large. I've got this chart in front of me here, and I'll, we'll put it on the screen. Uh, for those of you just listening, uh, we'll have some of this on our website on the blog page. 
So the 10 and 2 spread is often looked at as sort of indicators, and we talk about inversions at times mm. within these two spreads. Uh, what are we looking at in this, uh, this chart, and why does it matter? Yeah, so let's take a look at these interest rates. We had two, um, two main uh, interest rate levels on here. The purple line is the 10-year tr U.S. Treasury rate over time, and the uh, orange line is the two-year Treasury rate, and that blue shaded area is a comparison measuring the difference between the 10-year and the two-year. The reason we do that is we look at it in terms of uh, the shape of the yield curve. It helps us describe what interest rates are doing re one relative to the other. So that shaded area, what you can kind of see right away is that the shaded area, the blue, it tends to be greater than zero. What that tells us and over time is that that spread, that difference, investors tend to earn a higher interest with having longer term bonds. That's a positive upward sloping yield curve um, because again, you get compensated for taking on longer time periods. Now what happened if we kind of narrow in here throughout 20, in 2022, we saw that start to invert. And that's when we see that blue shaded area went below zero. And effectively what's happening here is the short-term interest rates, the two-year treasury in this case, moved higher than the 10-year treasury. So the yields moved higher, yeah. right? Yeah, you, could, uh, you could earn more per year by investing in a short-term two-year than you could taking potentially the greater risk of a long-term commitment. Yeah, yeah, and bonds can be, um, uh, they can be kind of, uh, difficult to grasp at times because at times we talk about interest rates going up and down and other times we talk about bond prices going up and down. Um, they are generally um, kind of inverses of each other. If rates go up, typically bond prices are coming down. But for this exercise, we're talking about the interest rate, to your point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, yeah. Any, any takeaways from this or sort of yeah, yeah. Going so, into 2024? Yeah, one of the things we've seen lately, you can see in that bottom shaded section again, as the uh, the level of the sh of the kind of the difference, the 10 versus two-year treasury spread has gotten um, effectively closer to zero. It's closing, put it that way. What's happening is we're seeing interest rates start to kind of, um, the two-year treasury is coming down. It's coming down more than the 10-year treasury. Um, and that's starting to effectively create more of a normal yield curve, right? When we, when we see this line get back above zero, that's back to having an upward sloping yield curve. This is the market, the bond market, pretty much are kind of buying into the Federal Reserve, what they're talking about. The Federal Reserve is saying um, inflation's coming down. We're done having a higher elevated kind of tightening monetary policy. We're going to get back to easing at some point. And so the bond market's starting to shift in that way. Because mm. recall, the bond market is largely controlled by the markets, by market participants. The short end of the yield curve, they're very short, the Fed funds rate is controlled by the Federal Reserve. And so the Federal Reserve is saying, you know, starting next year, we're going to start cutting interest rates. Well, the market's buying that. They're saying, yeah, we believe you. We're going to start pricing the bond market today as though rates are going to be lower. And so we start to see rates come down, and they change at different paces, and bond prices go up. That goes back to one of our original comments here. The bond market in the fourth quarter performed very well, and it's back to this point right here. Rates came down, prices went up. So to bring this uh, home a little bit more, uh, thinking through in our own client portfolios, I guess I imagine that we have kind of a mix of bonds, right? Not, again, of course, everyone's case is a little bit unique, mm -hmm. so we're speaking broadly here, but when we're buying, do we take this into account, um, the sort of duration of bonds, and do we place them separately and, and kind of in mind for a goal, a longer-term goal or a shorter-term goal? Do we buy based mm -hmm. on that or more based on just pure yield? Yeah, great, a great question, and the answer is absolutely. When we think about dollars that are needed for the short term, 
So think of in terms of someone that's retired that's taken money out of their portfolio. Those we want to match up with shorter term bonds that are aligned that they're going to come due and be available when they need them in the short term. So that's a very, um, I'd say, a rigid practice of making sure we have short term bonds for short term needs. Beyond that, we have other segments of the portfolio that have different time horizons. And in there is where we have, we, we view it as greater flexibility to buy different types of bonds, whether it's corporates, municipals, longer term, maybe shorter term, intermediate, moving around to where we think there's more value on the yield curve. That's a good, uh, maybe perhaps a good segue here too, because one of the things we've seen or observed over time, so let's rewind to last year, we saw interest rates peak on the short term. You could buy short-term treasuries, short-term CDs that were five, five and a half percent, right? There was this temptation, not, you know, across the market to say, gosh, if I can get a lock in a five or five and a half percent, why wouldn't I just go do that? And we would say, yeah, we would agree with that for a segment for those short-term needs. Other segments of the portfolio, in our view, should have other types of bonds. And the reason being is that after we hit peak interest rates for the cycle, which was during this last year, over and over again, we've observed this where moving forward, intermediate term bonds tend to actually outperform those short term bonds, even though the beginning interest rate was lower. And that goes back to the behavior of bond prices and interest rate movements. Um, and so there are good reasons to own other types of bonds versus just always seeking the highest yield, even if it's a short term. We do think that makes sense to own for a segment, but there's also good reasons to own other types of bonds. Mm. Uh, let's. Let's keep going through this deck a little bit more. We talked a little bit about CDs and the kind of rate hike cycle. Um, I think our next chapter here is around the consumer price index. Before we get to that, though, I want to hit on yeah. one more topic, because yeah. last we were just talking about um, comparing different types of bonds after peak rates. Yeah. The other thing to think about, too, is kind of going back to some of the temptations to get to lock in those short-term interest rates. We've seen this before, too, where stocks actually tend to perform well after peak interest rate levels. Mm, because so, if interest rates are going down, then you maybe expect the stock market to perform better, access to cheaper money, yeah. uh, better growth opportunities. Yeah, money's easier to yeah, money's easier to that's, borrow. That's a great point, right? So as yeah, as you as you hit peak, which we kind of say is around <clears> five point <throat> five something, yeah, treasury CDs, and then I don't know, it hasn't gone back up above that, right? That's kind of been the yeah. the high water mark so far. Yeah. We don't foresee them raising higher or at least not for long yeah yeah and there's and there's different yeah and there's not just because of um what can happen after those time periods although we observe that stocks and intermediate term bonds do pretty well after peak interest rate levels which again we saw last year um you know what we think about too is across a portfolio it's not just about diversifying against stock market volatility that's an aspect we want to make sure that we're uh, taking a measured approach to diversifying assets and not being overexposed to any one segment or any one uh, potential volatility or potential risk segment. The other thing, too, we think about there's risks of taxes, inflation, right? These things change over time, and different types of assets, especially as it comes to inflation, can offset the impacts of inflation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you and I had a conversation a while back as, as we were near that kind of peak interest rates um, that you're having to pay, is it income tax on those gains per year? So it's like even though you're you're above inflation, you have to figure in taxes because mm -hmm. it, it's realized tax each year as compared to a, a stock, for example, which you could hold in maybe a tax advantage account, maybe not. But 
yeah. you get to sort of pick when you want to realize that that potential gain. Right, yeah. Typically bonds, unless you're um, buying tax-free municipal bonds, but CDs, treasuries, these are taxable throughout the years that you own them as they're distributing income to you. Um, and so, yeah, you have a tax impact um, as well as an inflation impact, whereas right on the other side you have stocks that typically are taxed at a more favorable tax rate if you're held more than 12 months. Um, and you can also defer the capital gains on them. You don't have to sell them. You can continue to own Apple or you continue to own an S&P 500 index fund. You don't have to sell that in any particular year, whereas the bonds typically are going to have that uh, expected final maturity and income payments. Yeah, that's such a good point that it's it goes beyond just sort of the, yeah, if you're going to own stocks or bonds, that those tax implications are, are a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the uh, CPI, Consumer Price Index here. Um, we've got a chart going back to, it looks like 1970, yeah. uh, up through uh, the year. And I guess if we kind of zoom in post-2020, mm-hmm. you know, we see see that big spike hitting 9%. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and then hit, you know, you take the elevator up and the elevator down in this case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. The yeah, inflation now on a year-over-year basis, this looks at CPI, the Consumer Price Index, it's at 3.35%. Um, that has come down a lot in terms of that rate of change. The prices are still getting more expensive, it's just they're getting more expensive at a lower rate. Sometimes I use the example of, uh, you know, several years ago you buy a dozen eggs and say it was $3 and then it goes to $6, right? That's a, that's a big percentage change. And then it goes from six to six fifty or six seventy five, right? It's still getting more expensive, just at a lower rate. Yeah, yeah. So if we look back, I don't know, three to five years, we might see that inflation is, you know, been up what twenty percent, something like that, is, is the number I've kind of been going to. Yeah. You know, so when we see that that three and a half percent inflation, that's still above the the Fed's target, right? Which is two. They've cited two. I think it can two be a plus. moving target. I think the big the big takeaway here is that inflation has been coming down, right? The prices of things in terms of rate of change have been coming down. So I should restate that. Prices have not been coming down. The rate of change of increase. It's kind of a complex thing. And even when we write about inflation, we joke on around, you, know, you have something inflation, which is something going up, and you have rate of change, and you talk about inflation going up or down. It can be kind of convoluted. But the takeaway here is that the level of inflation on a year-over-year basis is coming down. And that's why, in part, the Fed, again, is declaring somewhat victory on inflation. Yeah, which leads us to interest rates um, either holding steady or potentially coming down in 2024. Yeah. And, uh, you know, potentially the, what do we have? It's all connected, right? Like, if bonds are up, uh, CPI is coming down, and then stock market, you know, has a potential to kind of foresee that and, yeah. and uh <clears throat> position and, for performance. Yeah, and one of the reasons when we hear, say, declaring victory, it's in part it's because the Fed did not trigger a recession during this rate uh, hiking cycle, right? They've been tightening monetary policy, they've been increasing interest rates. They did that without triggering a recession at to the up to this point, right? We don't, we can't predict what's going to happen in the coming six or 12 months, but up to this point, it appears as though they've been able to kind of get inflation down. They didn't upset the jobs market too much, and that's a big part why they've been able to keep increasing rates throughout this last year. But in effect, it's, it's kind of captured what, what they're calling the soft landing, right? Yeah. A hard landing would be they raise rates, it triggered a recession, uh, economic activity slows down, and it's kind of a reset in the economy. That hasn't happened, at least not yet. I think about the, the idea that 
that a market is not necessarily everyone believing the same thing, but it's that there's some balance, right? So if half, half the market thinks that there could still be a recession, the other half thinks there isn't going to be one, mm-hmm. that that's actually probably a, a good spot to be, that these kind of competing ideas are keeping each other in check. Yeah, yeah, it's a balance, right? Every time there's a buyer, there's a seller. When you right. think about a stock, pick on any company, setting aside a new stock issuance, right? If anyone's come to the market to buy, someone's going to be there to sell and they have different expectations and different kind of goals or objectives. And so there's that balance that occurs there. Um, and what I think gets kind of underappreciated is how much, how little it can take to make that get out of balance, right? Right. Two people show up one day, a buyer and a seller. The next day you have 10 sellers and one buyer, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that all shares of Apple are being traded that day. It's a very small amount. It just means that there's more sellers showing up than buyers, and that yeah. can cause the market to go down. All right, so we've gotten a little bit of a, a good connection there between CPI, uh, stocks, bonds, and interest rates broadly. Um, I love how this is all just so connected. You know, it, some of this, like, is it, it, it feels at, at, at the surface to be sort of like, this seems like a kind of a boring topic, but I think as we uncover these these connections between um, you know kind of you know KPIs or monetary fiscal things, it's like mm-hmm. wow, it, it's not like again we're not trying to predict the future, but we're saying historically these things have had an impact, mm-hmm. and yeah, and it's it's important to kind of track these things. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, it's putting together the pieces of understanding what happened, how it happened. And then using, yeah, using history as somewhat of a guide, because history is not going to necessarily repeat, um, but there are some rhyming elements. When we think about valuations, we think about interest rates, we think about inflation, there's certain things that tend to hold true over time. The timing of it, right, we'd argue that people are investors, participants, they're not going to get the timing right with consistency all the time, and that's not the goal. The goal is not to always try to be right with it, it's to, in a sense, try to avoid being wrong, overexposed, overallocated, um, and that's where, you know, when we think about managing portfolios and wealth management, that, that in our view, is a far more successful approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we touched a little bit on uh, CPI, uh, consumer price index, mm-hmm. having, you know, how that affects, you know, the, the cost of eggs or, you know, a, a flight or gallon gas, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a chart now, uh, consumer finances. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm assuming that credit card debts are up and, you know, uh, that, well, no, no let, me, let me back up here. So we're looking at the consumer balance sheet. So this is what people are owning. This, yeah. th- there's a lot of lines here. Maybe walk us through this chart <laughs> yeah. a little bit more. Let's connect some more dots. That's it. Um, yeah, so look, think in terms of balance sheet, right? A- any company, any individual has their own, has a balance sheet, right? You've got assets and you've got liabilities, typically, unless you're debt-free. Um, and then you typically have equity, which is the leftover. We think about this in terms of a company when you're evaluating, evaluating it, also in terms of an individual. Um, in fact, a lot of times we have planning discussions with clients, we have a page dedicated to understanding an individual's balance sheet. We don't call it that exactly, but that's an important exercise to get an idea of what is, what is the shape of the balance sheet. What we're looking at here, though, is over time, and this is, gives us a snapshot now, but assets for the consumers have risen materially over the last 10 and 15 years, right? Whether it's homes, their stock portfolios, their retirement 401ks other financial assets, right? The values of these assets have increased and that's made for um, a kind of stronger kind of consumer um, presence, I'll call it that. And I say it's going up relative to the liabilities, which have been relatively, you know, mortgages being the biggest liability out there. And there's also uh, other types of revolving auto loan student debt, but 
the assets relative to liabilities, broadly speaking, right? We're taking a broad swath here. We're not talking about segments, regions. Um, the consumer balance sheet's in actually pretty good shape. I think you brought up a good point there, just just kind of laying out the math mat, the math model, right? So you have equity because you have more assets than you have liability, or mm-hmm. the value of those assets. Not yeah. they're more, but the value of that. So it's yes, they went up, um, you know, maybe at the same rate or faster than inflation, and then your liabilities, um, you know, I guess how do we say that? Not went down, but became easier to pay is another way to say it. Yeah, and after ten or fifteen years of low interest rates, right? You think about again, connecting the dots here, right? The liability side of the balance sheet has become relatively uh, low cost, right? Individuals are able to refinance their mortgage at three percent for thirty years. Yeah. Um, and so we had a period of time where you have low interest rates, so cost of borrowing is um, a lot cheaper. At the same time, you have home values. Just pick on that, right? The cost of borrowing for your home has went down if you refinance or bought a new home prior to rates going up. And your asset value, the house kept going up. And so it's not necessarily bad to have liabilities or debt on appropriate types of assets. And that's an example where um, another way to say it is using leverage, borrowing at 3% to buy something in the house that maybe went up at 8% um, for a very low cost. That was um, that a big reason why consumer finances, consumer balance sheet has been in pretty good shape. Yeah, so thinking through like how much equity <clears throat> does the consumer have at the end of the day? Now that's maybe the better way to look at it. And, and just sort of broadly, it's fun to look at kind of at a macro, but as we're advising clients directly, we, we kind of have to come up with what's left over. Yeah. What, what's there for you to, uh, to live on and to you know, make those monthly goals? Yeah, exactly, because over time, those debts got to get paid down. And if income streams are falling off, for example, you're no longer working, you're retiring, what's the ability to service those debts, and does that still impact the plan? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's definitely a good um, analysis to go through. You mentioned uh, credit card debt before. Credit card debt has gone up. We've noticed that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, there, there's some indications where uh, individuals, um, consumers are increasing their, <coughs> excuse me, they're increasing their, uh, the, the use on their credit cards, um, which is not a great sign to see because credit card and credit card debt not, is not a great um, long-term solution um, for, for spending. But um, what we also find, though, too, so credit card debt's up. It crossed a trillion dollars last year. It's, it's all new highs. It got a lot of attention, but what didn't get a lot of attention I think is worthy of talking about is just the fact that the economy has gotten bigger, too. So credit card debt went up the value of the economy, the amount of goods and services being produced also went up. And so what we look at too is the ability to service that debt, right? It's not just the raw debt amount of a trillion dollars of credit card debt is can people in aggregate on average afford to pay it? And we've seen that with the debt service ratio or that's- Yeah, it seems like context is so important here. It's like, yeah, what is your, what do you, what do you call it? Your debt to income, there's some ratio there, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, that looking at just the raw number of a trillion dollars, you're like, oh man, we're we're all going to be uh, you know making late payments and the world's going to end. But mm-hmm. if we can service that debt based on sort of an aggregate, yeah, that uh, you know we're all earning more or the cost of goods are more, it kind of only makes sense. Yeah, you know that you're going to spend more if eggs cost three dollars and now they cost six and you got to pay that bill, put on credit card, you, you quickly get to a trillion. Yeah, but can you pay it down faster or can you pay it off as fast? Maybe that's the thing to look at is, you know, maybe revolving credit. That's maybe a topic for another show, but revolving credit, like how many are, yeah, how many accounts are delinquent? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, it's a good a good topic to hit on at some point. On the flip side, the consumer side is the public side or the government side, and that balance sheet is not as good looking on average. Uh, that's where you know, speaking of trillions, right? We have thirty four trillion in debt. We have the debt interest cost is rising as more and more debt has been accumulated, and so that's that's on the flip side. So the consumer's in good shape, the government, um, but again, ability to pay, capacity to pay is a big part of that here. And at this point, it's still it's still uh, the highest quality credit in the world. It's not that we have a concern around is the government going to go bankrupt here, but it's something that people need to be aware of, that we're aware of. Right. So I think about just kind of that GDP to debt ratio, just as you'd have a consumer level kind of income to debt ratio, mm-hmm. that these might be the, uh, kind of a similar way to look at things. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of, um, <laughs> I don't know what we're speaking of, kind of getting into the election year. Yeah. Right. You know, government debt, 34K or trillion, that's a big number. Uh, <laughs> a lot of trillions. Yeah. And so I, I think I think we always think like, oh, the you know, the election years every four years or so, these big presidential ones are going to bring more volatility. Yeah. Uh, when we look back on, on returns, maybe there's volatility, but is there is there any trends one way or another? Yeah, great, great question. And a good segue into it is that, yeah, in, you know, in short, we have not identified trends related to elections, election cycles um, that are consistent and market performance. Um, a great, a great um, report study I read is, you know, got into the discussion around investors buy companies for the long term. They buy them for what they are, those companies are producing, right? And companies are in the business of delivering value to their shareholders and running their businesses. Politics is another 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 arena mm-hmm. that's separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and politics change over time. Um, the big thing for businesses, we think about is um, any and anybody, individuals too, is when you know the playbook, when you understand what the rules are going to be, it's a lot easier to play the game. And if, if it's not if it's not clear on what that might be, then there's more uncertainty. It might delay businesses from making a decision. But um, that's the bigger thing in our mind is that companies don't like the uncertainty part of, yeah. Um, yeah, or I should say stock prices don't like the uncertainty. Companies too, but prices. Yeah, that. yeah, a, a company would want to know what's the cost of capital, what's the cost of money. So you're kind of looking at interest rates there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of sentiment, I suppose, in there, but then, yeah, there's, there's all, yeah, all these good factors. Yeah, we went back over the last 98 years of calendar years looking at what does the market do, on, what does the stock market do on average, and what happens in an election year to kind of just take that one year apart. Um, we find if we take the simple average of the last 98 years, the simple average return of all those years, it's about 12% for the stock market. And it's, about, it's positive about 73% of the time. Um, they have a positive return. If we look at a presidential election year, there's been 24 elections in that time period, 24 data points really. Mm-hmm. The average return is right around 12%, and it's positive, a little higher, about 83% of the time, it's positive during election year. Um, there's been some you know, big down years, the last big one was 2008, but far from any election factor there, that was the great financial crisis. Yeah, I, I, I think that I had an assumption that uh, presidential election years uh, had had more volatility, but when I see this chart, it, it almost is saying that it's, it's maybe less, or there's less of a range between the highest return and the lowest return. If I'm looking at that, yeah, yeah, that it's it's not it's it's not black and white. I guess maybe that's the takeaway. It's not, and just and to rifle off some of these numbers of positive 73 percent of the time too. You know, we look at a year like we'll pick on um, 2023, right? The year started out. It's hard to believe, but there was. Um, 
you know, not quite a year ago, we were in the finan we had financial concerns, right? The Signature Valley Bank and the others that went under, and we saw financial or bank stocks fall apart. Um, interest rates were rising, there was lots of uncertainty, right? I bring all that up because last year the market was up 26%. And so that data point in our heads, like, well, what a great year. That was easy. It was 26%. Well, it wasn't easy. We got there in a different path than what was expected. That's always the case. Um, so when we look at an account year basis, what I think this is good for investors, is, and as we think about too, as we sit around our investment tables, um, zooming out at times, right? Yeah. Zooming out to say what what tends to occur, and um, and acknowledging too when the things that you can control and can't control, and certainly elections. As we think about investing, we can have opinions on them. We can have. Um, even make decisions around them, but more often than not, what we find is that there's not a tight correlation between what happens in an election and what happens in the markets on a given year. Yeah, it seems like that uh, the question comes up of, you know, is a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, does that make a big difference? And just kind of based on what this, this conversation we've just had, it's like, in our view, probably not, right? It's continue to stay invested is, is maybe the, the answer, regardless of political party or what you think they will or won't do or what will get passed or uh, you know, what's the word gridlock, you know, if it's a split. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes we use the phrase, don't make short-term decisions with long-term money. And there's definitely times we want to make sure, um, thinking about, we mentioned before, short-term dollars, having that set aside stable in there. Cause we don't want to still, um, take on short-term risks and have uncertainty with things that we know are going to happen in the near term, like spending needs. But getting back to the elections, when we look at like we, a moment ago, we looked at calendar years. Even we look at months, so the month that the election occurred, and we look at this histogram of results and returns, whether it was a month a Republican won or a month a Democrat won or a non-election month, it's not. There's no pat. There's no pattern or clarity around. You know, if this happens, then historically this happens. It's across the board. Um, and so again, it goes back to right having a plan for how we're going to be if there's spending needs in the short term, but then also making decisions that are not just focused on just the short term uh, with long term, long term money. So our next slide up here is time in the market is more important than timing the market. Yeah, it just seems like it yeah, dovetails right into what you were, were just saying. Yeah, one of my favorite slides. Yeah. It, it, it really is because it, it's it, to that exact point, right? Trying to time things and trying to get it right. It comes back to right, we have to have the right time of when to get out, when to get back in. And the way I think is not often looked at is the amount of a portfolio you're going to do it with. Because you can be exactly right when getting out and getting in, but if it's 1% of a portfolio, it's not going to move the needle. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you get it wrong and you do with too much of a portfolio, right, you're taking on um, unwarranted risks, we'd argue. So getting back to this, so time in the market, more important than time in the market. <coughs> Excuse me. Over the last 20 years, we look at the far left side, the S&P 500 index, <clears throat> on average at about 10% a year over the last 20 years, right? That's, that's about the average 10. If you miss the top 10 days, that next bar over, what we see is that that return is 5.5%. So that's missing the top 10 performance days in the stock market over a 20-year period. So 10 days over 20 years. Your return on an annualized basis was effectively cut in half. That goes back to not trying to time it and participating in long-term dollars. It's not just set it and forget it. We still want to understand valuations. We still want to understand um, what different opportunities in the market look like, but that to exit the market based on a short-term view uh, with long-term dollars um, can, be, can be costly from an opportunity cost standpoint. Yeah, so staying invested through the period. Um, and I guess, like you're saying, some of that might be rebalancing into other assets that seem, you know, 
more attractive or sort of positioning them either to uh, kind of pull them down into the the short-term bucket, you know, as time goes on, or just to sort of position them or, like I say, rebalance in that longer term. Yeah, exactly. We don't ever want to be in an environment or in a situation where we don't have leverage to pull. So we're not saying markets won't be volatile, that we got to just sit tight. But if we get into a volatile period, whether it's election-related or something else, which um, we just want to make sure that we have leverage to pull, meaning uh, if, if markets or stock markets are down, prices are down, do we have the ability to rebalance, sell things that have done well, to buy things that are down on price, to again capture what we think will be a better outcome on the other side? And so having those levers in place is important. I'm thinking that might take us <clears throat> to about the end of this uh, this discussion deck. Um, I think we've talked, uh, you know, certainly talked about GDP and, and will the Fed land the plane? Yeah. Um, seems like probably yes, you know, be it March or September or, you know, some point. And landing the plane doesn't mean that interest rates don't go higher. It just means that um, we maybe stabilize at some of these levels we're at. Yeah, and, and we avoid a, a what um, avoid a recession. Right. Um, and so that's that that seems to be based on what we're seeing now and research providers that we also follow. <clears throat> that's a, that's what we see now is there's a greater chance of a soft landing um, where they continue to. Um, can navigate through here without triggering a recession based on their monetary policy, based on what they've been doing with interest rates. Inflation, we expect on a go-forward, will probably be more moderate, because again, we, we, we agree that the rate of inflation coming down in terms of rate of change, um, and we think that's going to continue to hold for the time being. So for this year, we're not, um, we don't see any inflation spikes that could be on the horizon that would be any kind of shock to the system. Um, and so that, I think that'll also why we're seeing some of the stock prices kind of be kind of settling in towards the end of last year is that some of this data information is kind of getting more, it's kind of sinking in a little more in terms of how stocks and companies are being priced. Hmm. Yeah, this has been a, I think a good uh, quarterly market update. You know, we covered a lot that sort of happened in 2023. We looked at some history, uh, a little bit of looking forward, some kind of interest rates, made some good connections between bond stock interest rates uh, CPI uh, maybe didn't get into unemployment too much but it seems like those numbers are kind of in line with some expectations plus or minus yeah you're right the employment market's been stayed relatively strong throughout this throughout these last several quarters um, yeah and you know and if you think about where the markets are now what we've seen after last year it's a great time to be and what things we're looking at now is it's a great time to be evaluating rebalancing opportunities anytime after a big market movement, um, thinking in terms of <clears throat> what can be trimmed or rebalanced or um, adjusted in a portfolio. Equally, making sure, looking at evaluating, um, do we have enough of those dollars set aside for that short-term assured income segment? Um, again, with markets high, this is a good time. One of the things we're evaluating now is making sure we have those um, sufficient dollars set aside. And that can involve some rebalancing, which in our view is a healthy time to do it. We've had a big market movement. It's a good time to be evaluating some of these things. Awesome. It was really great to uh, do this show with you, Jason. Um, I know you've got to uh, you, you got to be chaperone at the ski hill <laughs> soon enough. So uh, yeah, we can wrap wrap it up here. Yeah, been a busy day, but yeah, thanks, Ezra. This has been great. Awesome, thanks. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Be sure to consult first with a qualified financial advisor and or a tax professional before implementing any investment strategy. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. 
Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed.